This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Book Waves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. Tony Hillerman, who died in 2008 at the age of 83, was a master of the detective genre and an important writer in detailing life on the Navajo Reservation. His several novels featuring Navajo police officers Joe Leaphorn and Jim Chi have been acclaimed for their accuracy and for their ability to combine Navajo history and thought into strong plot-driven novels. There are four interviews with Tony Hillerman in the Probabilities and Bookwaves archives. This first interview, conducted by my late co-host Richard A. Lupoff, was recorded on January 14, 1987, in a hotel in San Francisco, while Hillerman was on tour for his novel, Skinwalkers. It was the seventh in the series, and the first to feature both Leaphorn and Chi in the same book. He would continue to write a total of 18 books in the series, and his daughter, Anne Hillerman, has continued the series with eight more novels, the most recent being The Way of the Bear, which was published in April 2023. Tony Hillerman also wrote four novels outside the series and several books of nonfiction and photography. The Dark Wind was adapted into a theatrical film with Lou Diamond Phillips in 1991. Three other novels were adapted into TV movies for PBS, and Dark Winds, a streaming series, is currently on AMC and is adapted from Hillerman's Leaphorn and Chi novels. This interview was digitized, remastered, and edited in August 2023 and has not been heard since its original broadcast. Your most recent book is called Skinwalkers. Readers, I guess, would be wondering what a skinwalker is. The word's a sort of a slang expression for a one of the several kinds of Navajo wolves, I mean witches, they also call them Navajo wolves, a person who can change form from man to beast. A sort of werewolf. Sort of werewolf, yes, but it doesn't have the immortality notion, which can be killed. And as a matter of fact, not many years ago, four people were killed on the Navajo reservation by a man who thought they were witches and thought they had caused his daughter to become ill. Were they? Well, <laughs> who knows? No one could ask him. They were, he shot them all. Another person was killed uh, out there not too many years ago, a state policeman by two Laguna Indians who thought he was a witch and ambushed him. We're talking about current times. We're not talking we're about... We're talking about, yeah, modern times. Belief in witches is pervasive on the reservation. Most people tremendously high percentage of Navajos believe in kinds of witchcraft. Well, I have to say that after reading several of your novels, I find it hard not to believe in it. Do you? How would I put it? I I am a romantic, I guess. I am one of those who, I've never seen a flying saucer. I would love to see one. As far as I'm concerned, nobody has ever proved to me that they don't exist. Um, I like to let the skeptics prove that there's no witches, and meanwhile, I'll remain ambiguous, uh, enjoying the possibility of witches. 
since this subject has popped so fast, I'd like to back off a little bit. I checked um, some of the standard biographical data on you, which tells us that you were born in Oklahoma in 1925 at Sacred Heart, Oklahoma, and that you were raised by Potawatomi and Seminole Indians and attended an Indian boarding school for some eight years. But you yourself have Anglo background, is that correct? Yeah. I grew up among, with Indian playmates and Indian friends, uh, but I'm, I guess I'm a sort of a street dog. Typical American, some English, some German, some God knows what. Sort of a Duke's mixture of the kinds of people who make up this country. But as far as I know, I don't have any Indian blood in me. Just a lot of Indian friends. And the, as it happened, this was this sacred heart. It was a tiny community, crosswords community, a general store and a cotton gin and, and uh, a church. And it got its unusual name because the French Benedictine group of French Benedictines made a deal with the Potawatomi Indians to build a seminary there in Indian Territory days and did so. Then the, when the territory was open to white settlement, a bunch of French and German families came in there from Missouri, and most of the territory, of course, was settled out of the old Confederacy by fundamentalist Christian Protestant folks. Mm -hmm. So we were sort of a little island enclave there of a church, only church in the territory, only Catholic church, I guess, in the territory. And a lot of Potawatomis and Seminoles and people named Weidenheimer and Kusterstef and, <laughs> and French names. We were considered kind of weird. It's certainly an odd mix. I still don't quite get the point of how you came to attend an Indian boarding school. Okay, I didn't. The, the Benedictines started a seminary for Potawatomi boys and were followed by an order of nuns who opened a big boarding school for Potawatomi Indian girls. The seminary was closed. It was a very poor country, and they moved it. But the nuns stayed behind with this girls' school, and they let some of us redneck farm boys attend because the only alternative was a two-room school with one teacher who was sort of subliterate himself. And our my dad and mother were very much into education, and so were some of the other parents. So they let us in as sort of second-class citizens. But this this then gave you certainly a very unusual cultural background. Yeah, you, you grew up, for one thing, knowing that these Indians, just like I was, you know. There were two kinds of people when I grew up. There were town boys, and there were country boys. And the Potawatomis, my friends, the Harjos, and the Delonis, and the Nonis, and so forth, the other Indian boys and I, we were country boys. We rode the school bus when we got old enough to go to high school. We carried our lunch in a sack. We wore bib overalls and high shoes and so forth. And the town boys wore belt pants and low-cut shoes and had money and knew how to shoot pool and knew how to use a telephone. And they were very sophisticated, and we considered ourselves more macho, see. The Potts and the Seminoles and I, we, we figured we could whip those town boys until we maybe got in a fight with one and learned different. And we were better at shooting twenty twos and riding horses, and, you know. So there were two, and I've always, I've always identified all my life sort of with, <laughs> with country boys and Navajos. And frankly, I feel much more rapport and much more easy with a bunch of Navajos than I do with seven guys from Yale University. This theme of Cultural, uh, I won't say cultural clashes, but certainly cultural interface. Cultural interface and interactions, it seems to me, pervades your books. And in the most recent Skinwalkers, uh, there's a fascinating 
Navajo Jewish shopkeeper. Uh, is, is this based on a real person? Based on a, I, I have to admit, it's based sort of on a on a fascinating woman who is. She's not a shopkeeper. She's a widow, but she is in fact one hundred percent Navajo, and she's in fact a Jewish. She converted. She married a Jewish man, as did the character in this book, and uh, a very intelligent, very bright, interesting woman who I had in my mind. I thought, you know, why not? I wanted a kind of a different character. And I changed her. I mean, she, her personality, I'm sure, is quite different. But To get back a little bit to biography, after attending the schools, you served in the infantry in World War II. Yeah. I attained the rank of private first class twice, which not a lot of people do, I think, and, and uh, was very senior private first class when, when I was shot up and, and eventually got back to the States. Where did this happen? In, I was in, in Europe, uh, in the 410th Infantry. I was uh, in a rifle company. A fascinating experience for a kid out of the country, getting to see Europe. <laughs> Did you have a good time before you got shot up? Oh, well, not exactly a good time, but, uh, but uh, again, imagine, you know, never having been anywhere, uh, an interesting time. I wasn't what you'd call a war lover because you're scared half the time. And when you're not scared, you're cold and wet. And But, but it was certainly... a enlightening, illuminating, fascinating experience. I think you're maybe being a little bit too modest about this because, the, again, the standard reference work suggests that you not only received the Purple Heart for those wounds, but you also won the Bronze Star and the Silver Star. That's not just the ordinary PFC. Well, I won the, the important one, the Silver Star, more or less out of desperation. We were sort of cut off uh, our company was and and overrun early one winter morning by a detachment of German uh, paratroopers. Obviously, didn't, they were former paratroopers. They had on paratrooper helmets, and uh, and it was simply a matter of, of a desperate attempt to keep from <laughs> being killed. I got the job of of in the confusion of trying to keep some of these fellows from crossing up. A real narrow highway embankment, and uh, was able to do so. And and uh, you, you know, it, the choice was if I either keep them from crossing or pay the consequences. You know, your motivation is very strong under the circumstances. And as it worked out, they didn't get across, and uh, I got decorated for that. Where was that? It was close to a little town. It was right, probably no more than three miles from the Rhine. A little town called Sessenheim. Uh, it was in a German counterattack. Uh, we were trying to, we'd made a futile effort to take capture the town and had given up and paused and they counterattacked, as they frequently did. It was in February, it was in 44, I guess, the winter of 44, 45, but probably, probably in maybe December of 44 or November. Would that have been the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge? It was right after the Battle of the Bulge. It was kind of a reaction. No, I guess it was. Ah, memory is such a strange thing. I'm not sure whether it was before or after. It was in that general period, uh, and it wasn't too far from the bulge was for the north. Wonderful feeling to know you've got the million-dollar wound. Usually what happens, you got it, people did, in our in the rifle company, people tended to get wounded, and they'd be gone a month, and then they'd come back still limping, but good enough shape to 
and you didn't want to get wounded that way. You want to get bad enough so you actually got back to the States, and this was bad enough. Did you want to mention what it was? Well, I, I had a, nobody, I don't know what it was, whether it was a, a little concussion grenade. It, I think it was a concussion grenade, but I think I saw this. They, they leave sparks when it, it was a night time thing. We were a little raid on a German hill town, and we were supposed to capture it, and then and then come return to our lines, which didn't make much sense. But anyway, we didn't even capture it. Uh, and I was running toward a building at the back of the town, and the fellow threw a concussion grenade out, and, and it came down right between, right under my left foot, blew me up in the air, and blinded me for a while, and broke my legs up. I mean, you're fully functional. Well, no, I, I have a bad eye, and one of my legs bothered me once in a while. I, I don't want to, you know, dwell on that excessively, but experiences like that, which the average citizen knows about only at second or third hand, if at all, uh, must certainly have gone into the making of the man and must reflect in some way, I would think, in your work. Well, my policemen tend not to ever shoot people. Um, <laughs> I think, and I don't have any guns around the house. I guess it makes sort of a pacifist out of you a little bit. Well, I think it probably lets you understand human nature, too. After the war, you, you uh, returned home, attended university, and then became a journalist. Right. Mm -hmm. And that was not just a brief phase. Uh, you no, spent quite no. some time there. I worked as a police reporter and as a political reporter, and I worked for UP, and then I eventually became editor of the state capital paper in New Mexico. For I worked at it for 17 years. Decided I was sort of burned out and I needed to repotting myself. Went to the University of Mexico and enrolled as a graduate student in English and got a job as sort of a handyman for the president's officer. A runner of errands and a political fixer and a lobbyist and a... At the university? Yeah. Doer of dastardly deeds that nobody else wanted to mess with. And, and when I got my degree, began teaching journalism and did that for 20 years. Meanwhile, I was writing fiction. I began writing fiction late 60s. The transition from journalism to fiction, I suppose it's fairly common, but what, was there a particular motivation there? I love to write. I had reached a point where I thought I was pretty well as good as I was going to get in writing of nonfiction. I admired the way certain people wrote fiction, and I thought, I want to see if I can move on into another direction and how good I can get at this. That was the motivation. The transition, it seems to me that writing is writing. Uh, each time you sit down at the typewriter, word processor, whatever, you're, you're presented with a problem. You look, here's the audience, here's the idea or the information got to be communicated. The problem is how do you do it? That is exactly the same truth in fiction or nonfiction. I feel each time I look backward and I say, well, that one was, I made some improvement in that one, but I still didn't get it. So I'll try again till I'm going to keep doing this till <laughs> I get it right. See? So each one is different and each one, uh, each time you're trying to do it better. And uh, there's certainly, people ask, where do you get your ideas? And I, I, for storytellers, ideas are, you're flooded. Everywhere you look, there's an idea. This hotel is full of ideas. Hit me with three. Well, my first idea is that I should watch what I say. I shouldn't make un statements without thinking of them. Okay, uh, but I bet I can come up with a couple. You see ideas for characters, for example. A very short, very attractive young woman gets in the elevator with a 
very tall, thin woman. The, the young woman is has is wearing a fur which must be worth twenty thousand dollars. The the tall, slender woman is rather poorly dressed, and yet the tall, slender woman seems to be the dominant personality in the two. And there is something going on there, and I watch him. And I, as I watch him, I'm confident that my brain is going to store this. And someday when I'm laying there trying to go to sleep, I'll come back to it, and maybe I'll, maybe it will, maybe one of those women will show up. Maybe that strange little conflict in the elevator I saw neither the beginning or the end of will take a shape, you know, things like that. That's a good one. I like that a lot. Your first book was The Fly on the Wall. No, Blessing Way. Blessing Way. Almost everybody thinks The Fly on the Wall was first, but matter of fact, Blessing Way. Of your fiction, and there's some nonfiction as well that we might talk about, but of the fiction, we have the Joe Leaphorn books, who is a Navajo police lieutenant, mm -hmm. and Jim Chi was yeah. a Navajo police sergeant. The latest book, Skinwalkers, has them both in it, which raises an interesting question. When you have two series like this going and they converge in this fashion, where do we go from here? And the answer is I'm not really totally sure. I have a contract signed for another book and a deadline, which I've never had before. I've never before sold a book in advance. I just write it and send it in which is sort of unusual these days. It's sort of old-fashioned way to do it. This time I signed a two-book contract. Now, I've got this book started, and it uses, as of now, Leaphorn, who I started with, the one I'm working on. Yes. Why does it use Leaphorn? It's hard to say. There's something about the book, as it exists sort of in nebulous form in my mind, that tells me I need Leaphorn's more sophisticated, more skeptical, more cynical uh, view of all this stuff that's going to be happening. It's going to concern pot hunters, people who dig up Indian ruins and steal the pots and sell them to Southby's for 10000 bucks or sometimes 60000 bucks, and outrage the anthropologist. I thought, I really want to have a kind of guy looking at this who's thinking, okay, who's, who's the pot hunters? Are the anthropologists maybe the pot hunters? Certainly some of the early anthropologists did terrible damage, yes. the famous ones. You know, I want to have a kind of a, a broad, skeptical look at all this as I write it. So I think I'm using Leaphorn. But it could well be, as this book begins to really take shape, that I'll either, I may run Chi in. It's his, it's a part of the reservation that Chi works in. Uh, so Chi could logically appear without me transferring him to, off to some other sub-agent. Yes. <laughs> And typically in my books, it's really none of the Navajo, it's not Navajo jurisdiction. It's a federal crime violation of the Antiquities Act, see? And so they have only peripheral jurisdiction. It seems to me that in all of these novels, there's a very strong element, at least on the borderline of fantasy, that is based on the Navajo or other Indian culture. Even the names, Ghostways, Skinwalkers, People of Darkness, Dance Hall of the Dead. All of these books have... Yeah a very, very strong feel of culture based on belief in the supernatural and possibly on the reality of supernatural. I am interested in people who believe in those invisible, ill-definable things, the metaphysical things, strongly enough so that it affects the way they live, so it affects the values they live by. I myself am a religious fellow. Uh, you wouldn't know it to 
look at me or watch me, but I, I, it's important to me. My religion is important to me. And I have a lot of respect for other people whose religion is important to them. And not just respect for them, but interest in them. Hopis, for example, are extremely prayerful people. The Hopis I know, the, the one basic thing that is more important than anything else or everything else put together is their religion. Uh, they don't talk about it much, certainly not around me, around white people, but it's a fact of life. And traditional Navajos, their religion, their beliefs are important to them. Okay, so you're talking about metaphysics. You're talking about the world beyond physics, beyond yes. the, what an electrical engineer can work out on his computer. So the books, it, it runs through the books. Best example probably is The Dance All the Dead, in which you have a young Navajo boy, broken family, broken culture, lost because his dad's a drunk and his mother's abandoned him, who wants to find something. And he's looking for a home in the Zuni culture. And he and his friend violate a taboo, or think they have, a critically serious one. And it's, it's all about this search for something in life, beyond life. I mean, it's a murder mystery, but... That's part of to the interest of me. Well, in, in fact, uh, that that little throwaway comment of yours raises two very interesting questions, I think. Uh, one of them, well, for instance, uh, Carol Cleveland, a uh, critic in writing about you, says that each of these books is, is, in fact, three stories, a suspense story, a police procedural, and a Western adventure. Uh, that seems to put you with, uh, with at least one foot in at least three different camps. <laughs> How do you feel about that? You know, it's never been of any particular interest to me whether or not I'm considered a mystery writer or a regional writer or a Western writer. It's very important to some people. It doesn't really seem to me to be particularly important. What I want to do is, one, get published, and two, get read. And I like to be read by people who appreciate what I'm trying to do. And I think I am being read by more and more by those kind of people, judging from the mail I get. It seems to me that a writer engages in a partnership with a reader. I encode the signal. I try to recreate an image and scenery and reality, a certain kind of reality in the mind of a reader. Obviously, no writer, you don't have the power to do it without intelligent cooperation on the part of the reader. If a character is important and he's going to continue appearing, I frequently describe him very little because I know my reader as soon as he begins getting acquainted with this woman or man, is going to say, yeah, I know what he looks like. And I think you're, I'm kind of wondering, how, didn't that sort of drift a long ways from what well, you were Well, no, asking? it didn't. I, I think that's uh, very relevant. The other side of the question is, you, you mentioned readers and uh, responses. What sort of reactions do you have from the Indian people? I'm glad you asked that question, because it's really important to me. Above all, those are the ones I most want to read me. And more and more and more and more they are. They use them. They, for one thing, they have, a lot of the kids have to read me because they, they use them throughout the reservation in Indian school. Uh, Navajo Community College at, at Shiprock uses, I was there last a couple of months ago, and they told me they're using five of my books in classes. Uh, I have a lot of Navajo friends, and I, and I get a, quite a bit of feedback. But when I go to signings that around the reservation, Flagstaff, Gallup, Farmington, the Navajos turn up. The happiest thing they say, as far as I'm concerned, is, and I hear this now, and I thought you were a Navajo. I love that. 
Also, I love, I've heard this several times and I love this too. Middle-aged people saying, you know, I couldn't get my kids interested in our culture until they read your books. And then they come to me, now they come to me and they, and they want to know, you know, they want to know about our origin story and they want, and I had a, a Navajo librarian tell me that they're popular with young Navajos particularly because not only what's, well, I'll put it this way. She said they read James Welsh, Winter in the Blood. They read Leslie Silkel's Ceremony. They read Mama Day. And they say, well, yeah, this is us and, and it's beautiful, but it's so tragic, so sad. Yeah. And they read Hillerman and they say, yeah, that's us too and we win. See, they like the upbeat part of it. You portray the Navajo culture to me as, as obviously non, non-Indian, but a, just a general reader as a, a marvelously complex and rich and beautiful culture. I, I think it, it is. <laughs> Do you think it's going to endure permanently? Well, I'm no prophet, and a lot of Navajos are worried about it, but the Navajo culture has got something unusual going for it. It revolves around a concept of hosro. The whole purpose of their ceremonial system, of their religion, is to maintain that harmony in the individual with what surrounds him. Okay, so if things change and the Navajo is unhappy with the change, then he's out of harmony. So he has a curing ceremonial to bring him back into harmony, see, to adjust him. Uh, example I like to use in a terrible, say a terrible drought comes. It's always dry, but a real bad one. And sheep are dying and everything drying up. People hauling water. Okay, the Hopi and the Zuni and you and I, Christians, or whatever your religion are, you tend to pray for rain. In other words, you you ask the powers that be to adjust nature to end this problem for you. Not the Navajo. That would be totally beyond his, uh, different than his thinking. His thinking is, I'm unhappy. I'm out of harmony with this situation. Therefore, I have a curing ceremonial, the proper one, to bring me in harmony with drought. I change the Navajo. Don't change the weather. So, that's what they do. But the sheep continue to die. The sheep continue to die, and he keeps having to haul in water to drink, but he doesn't ask nature to change. He changes himself. He said, okay, I'm, I'm becoming very poor. I've got to get content with this. There's another attitude that you, you refer to in one of the earlier books, at least possibly several of them, a very different attitude, a Navajo attitude toward crime and violence than what we think of as the American attitude, which is to say we've got to catch the bad guy and punish him. No value attached to revenge. Strange concept to them. If someone harms you, chances are he's out of Hosro. He, he's sick. He needs to be cured. Uh, they don't tend to blame him for it. They don't tend to want to go get even. They, they hope he gets cured and maybe they don't like him. They'll stay away from him. But not, no, no eye for an eye. There's nothing about eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth anywhere in the Navajo mythology. But this creates a terrible problem for people like Jim Chi and Joe Leaphorn, who are more or less, at least, administering American legal structure, which, in, mm-hmm. which is built very heavily on the concept of punishment. But if you'll notice, neither one of them, when it comes down to crunch, do much punishing or arresting or anything else. In the Dance Hall Dead, for example, Leaphorn doesn't even bother to tell the FBI, who does have jurisdiction, who the villain is. 
he goes about his business and lets them worry about it. He knows the problem is solved and the crime is solved. He knows who did it. He doesn't tell the FBI. And it's the same situation in a way in the dark wind in which she simply throws the, the cocaine into the river and goes about his business. You know, I'm conscious of that attitude. How do you feel about it? I am perturbed, really, by the ferocity of our culture's demand for vengeance. I don't think it used to be that bad. We claim to be the very same people who, who say we are a Christian nation. You know, and of course, we're not really a Christian nation in any sense of the word. And, and the founding fathers didn't, I think, really intend us to be. They wanted to be a nation in which all religions had freedom. But these very same people are clamoring for... I was just on television today. They arrested the fellow, apparently, who burned down the hotel in Puerto Rico. And I see the mother of one of the victims telling us what she thinks should be done with him, torn limb from limb and tortured and so forth. You know, I, I, I just think it's wrong. I guess it's inevitable. Maybe it's human, but it's certainly not a praiseworthy social trait. Do you think it would work if our society, our broad general society, attempted to apply this attitude, this novel attitude? No, because we'd have to change a lot of other things. We would have to stop being materialistic, and I don't think we're going to do that. See, the Navajo doesn't attach any status to owning things. In fact, if you own too many things, it's negative because you're probably not doing the important things, which is taking care of your family. And the family includes your clan. It includes a lot of people. So we'd have to change that. We'd have to change our attitude toward people. And their attitude toward people is, well, the first responsibility is taking care of the people who depend on you. First, second, third, fourth, and fifth responsibility is that. Then you start getting down to extremely heavy notion that a good person takes care of the people who depend upon him or her. You know, if, if you change the whole culture, then it would work. You wouldn't have to have so much vengeance because they have, they, have virt they have very little violence and very little homicide except uh, that which grows out of drunkenness. On a somewhat different subject, you mentioned earlier that before you began writing fiction, you had some favorite authors that you feel influenced you. You didn't mention any names. Would you do that? Okay, I I will, and, I, and I'm, I'm leaving people out. But, but um, at the time when I first began, I'd been really getting into Graham Greene. I'd been reading all the Eric Ambler books. I was rereading Deshiel Hammett and Raymond Chandler, especially Chandler. Chandler has never gotten the, 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 the critics, the establishment of English department has never recognized what an incredible, important man Chandler was in American literature, far more important than Scott Fitzgerald. Those people and others, and, and uh, Nicholas Freeling, I believe, uh, and I was beginning to remember having read Arthur Upfield, the Australian, when I was a very young man, and remembering what he did with the Australian outback and the Aborigines. I think all those people influenced me. Today, I am a real fan of Charles Williford, the Miami writer who wrote Miami Blues and New Hope for the Dead and, and just delights me with every book. I like Elmore Leonard, so does 70 million other people, deservedly. I like Lawrence Block. I like Arthur Mayling, who writes out of Chicago about the business executive. I like Robert Bernard, the English tongue-in-cheek writer in, in while we're in England, Jack Scott, who creates that horribly uncouth 
Scotland Yard fellow, Inspector Rosher. And I like James McClure, the South African. And what do you look for in characters? And Williford and Elmore Leonard and et cetera, and all give you good, memorable people. You care about the people, so you care about the plot. Way, way back, we're, we're almost out of time, but back at the beginning of our conversation, we mentioned the fly on the wall and then went in another direction. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because that is, is a novel which is not connected or, I think, very similar to any of the others. Yeah, I in fact, it was. I hoped it was going to be a really big book. It was important to me, this this horns of the dilemma on which a political reporter finds himself, where the, the gray area between morality and ethics and so forth. How much does the public need to know? Everything? Uh, do you destroy persons, people, in, in the name of public information? Yes. But should you? Those torturing kind of questions. So I wanted, I wanted to, to give you a political reporter, an average political reporter in an average job, state capital job, digging into corruption and getting himself in a dangerous situation where he was very, very dangerous to the people involved in corruption and political careers and, and have him face this problem. I still like the book, and it was picked by Jacques Barzun and Taylor, the two guys who wrote Catalog of Crime, as one of the classics in their Garland Publishing Company list of American classics. It was republished by them. It never did sell very well. Uh, one other question. Since there there seems to be a great popularity in, in uh, visual media, I'm talking about TV and movies, of mysteries these days, have you had any involvement with that? Yeah, all the way back to the 70s, early 70s, when Warner Brothers optioned Blessing Way, when it first came out. There's been one or more of those books under option almost consistently by somebody. Trouble is, they get a screenplay written and they can't find anybody stupid enough to put up all that money. And so now all of the Navajo Tribal Police books, except Skinwalkers, are under an option by First Arts, which is really Richard Erdman is the moving force behind it, a former Disney producer. Uh, Erdman has a script written. I haven't read it yet. I've got it in my briefcase here. Uh, he tells me he hopes to begin production uh, this year. Probably, I pre presume, this summer would be the time to shoot it. Script's based on Listening Woman. Do, do you know anything about a cast? No, absolutely nothing. You've been listening to an interview with the late mystery author Tony Hillerman, who died in 2008 at the age of 83. The interview was conducted during the tour for the novel Skinwalkers on January 14, 1987, by the late Richard A. Lupoff. No adaptation of Listening Woman was ever made. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com, and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. 